Well, this morning we're continuing that series where we've been looking at uh, who we are as a church. It's uh, four weeks, so we're in the third week now. So next week we'll be continuing, uh, finishing up that look. And then, uh, believe it or not, the holidays are upon us. So after next Sunday, the following Sunday, we'll start our Christmas series, Emmanuel. We've got uh, four different people from the church uh, lined up to share through through December. And so that's always one of my favorite times of the year to be able to learn more about one another. And I think it'll be really fitting and appropriate coming out of this series as well, too in which we've talked about the value of how we encourage one another and gather together and then to be able to spend some time hearing from people and couples in the congregation I'm looking forward to. Barry's actually going to be kicking that one off from us. You've had him speak, but never uh, never, never had him share part of his story and testimony, and so I'm looking forward to that beginning uh, the end of November. But this week we're continuing to look at what it is to be a church, what it is, who we are, God has called us to be as a church, and we've been doing that by asking a series of questions. So in week one we ask, what is a church? How do we define and understand what it is that we do when we come together? And then last week, what is it in these gatherings that takes place with worship and a sermon and prayer for one another? How are we supposed to understand what a church does when it is gathered together? Uh, we've been basing all the last couple of weeks off of passages in Hebrews. In many way, I, ways, I've been coming to understand more and more how central to the book of Hebrews this idea of gathering together and encouraging one another is. And we're actually going to be continuing to do that. We started in uh, chapter 10, and last week I briefly looked at places in 11 and 12, and we're going to be reading from chapter 13, the concluding chapter today of Hebrews. So uh, it'll take us a few minutes to get there, but if you want to turn your Bibles, we'll be in Hebrews 13. Uh, So far, the two things that Hebrews has offered us is this command not to neglect gathering together, as some have made the habit of doing, and instead, the alternative we looked at last week, but encourage one another. Those two things, don't neglect gathering and encourage one another, have been the things we've looked at so far. I want to ask the next question that sort of follows those up, and so today the question will be, how are we supposed to think about this relationship one to another? We come together to encourage one another, but how is it we should think about who we are as a community, or what are these relationships, the relationship we have with one another when we do gather and encourage each other? That's really a question in many ways about expectations, and a particular kind of expectations, relational expectations for one another. What should we expect from one another as those who show up and worship together, as people a part of the same church? It's common to define or talk about a church as not just a building or a program, but the people. That's sort of like church definition 101, right? You've heard, we're the people, not the building. Well, the truth is, it's usually the people that end up hurting you or causing problems in a church, not the building or the programs. So this conversation about expectations when it comes to people and community and relationships is an important one. And for many people, one that has all sorts of history and baggage and expectations of your own. Maybe we should set the conversation a little more broadly, though, to begin. Uh, Many people in our culture have been talking about another pandemic, uh, not of the virus kind, but a pandemic of isolation that seems to have been growing worse, partly because of the season we've been through, but really in many ways has been upon us for some time. Many scientists are pointing out that people today are more isolated and experiencing greater levels of loneliness than they ever have in any of the studies previously done. There was a report out uh, toward the middle of the pandemic from NPR talking about this trajectory that was now worsening because of the pandemic, and they wrote this. More than three in five Americans now say they are lonely, 
with more and more people reporting feeling like they are left out, poorly understood, and lacking companionship. One study found a nearly 13% rise in loneliness since just 2018. Loneliness appears to be more common among men. The survey found 63% of men say they are lonely compared to 58% of women. Social media use was tied to loneliness as well, with 73% of people who describe themselves as heavy social media users considering themselves also lonely, compared to 52% of those who say they are light users. But feelings of isolation were prevalent also across all generations. Gen Z, people who are age 18 to 22 years old, when surveyed had the highest average loneliness score on the 80-point scale, above 50, And boomers, the lowest at 43, but all considered in the lonely category. Um, One cultural commentator who was writing about this trend of loneliness and isolation worsening put it this way. In an era of instant communication via technology and cell phones and email, some would argue that it doesn't make sense that people are now more lonely. Nevertheless, sharing the antidote to loneliness is not the same thing as talking. Chattering with another person can simply be a mask, a veil, a barrier, a poor substitute, a distraction from loneliness, similar to having the television on in the background to keep the house from seeming empty and barren, or to make it less obvious that the people inside are not interacting with each other. Ultimately, they write, we are free, but autonomy is just another way of being alone. Autonomous individuals have no responsibility to others, just as others have no claim on them. There is no obligation to care about others' troubles or even to listen when someone intrudes into another's priceless personal space in search of a sympathetic hearing of their concerns and difficulties. I think much of what characterizes this moment of loneliness, of isolation that many people find themselves in is particularly this, this irony. We have never been more free more able to make our own choices and do the things we want, and possibly because of it, never have we found ourselves more isolated and more lonely. That idea of freedom, autonomy, sounds pretty good to most of us. Free to choose, free to do what we want, pursue the hobbies we want, engage the relationships we want, to find the people and the places and the things that work best for each of us, and to do those things, what we want. But I'm really struck by that line, Autonomy is just another way of being alone. That the freedom to do all of the things you would like, the way you want them and how you want them, maybe even the freedom to pick the kinds of friends and the kind of people you would like to associate with, is really just another way of being alone. I think to some degree we all end up feeling that. Most of us recognize well enough by now, this point in life, that relationships come with responsibility that a relationship always has expectations, or another way of saying it, every relationship has certain obligations. On one end of that spectrum is a person with absolutely no obligations to anyone, completely free. But because of that, because they have no responsibility, no obligations, they find themselves completely alone. They can do whatever they want, they can be wherever they want, show up, not show up, not have to share any of it with anyone, but because of that, There is no one to share it with. On the other end of that spectrum, completely free, completely autonomous, are those relationships many of us know that require the most out of us, that restrict us and take our autonomy, 
Um, Some of you, myself included, have young children. You know very well when those children are smallest, they take a lot of the autonomy and freedom out of your life. They take your sleep and your money and your time. But others of you know other kinds of relationships like that. Some of you are caring for aging parents and realize the amount of freedom that it takes from you. Marriage itself is a kind of limitation on freedom, the obligation of caring for someone, or even friendships oftentimes come with unique challenges and expectations that are associated with them. What most of us want are the benefits of both of those without the consequences. We want deep, meaningful relationships, but not with too many expectations or obligations. Can't our friendships just always work and be fulfilling to us and not actually require something that we don't want? It's usually at that moment we find ourselves torn between these two extremes. We want total freedom, but not to have to be alone. And we want deep, meaningful friendships, but not that require or cost too much from us. The problem is those two extremes don't work together. And perhaps many of us, I think our culture included, finds themselves swinging wildly between the two extremes. I need a friend. I would like to have less friends. I I need me time. I wish I had someone to share this experience with. And we constantly find ourselves caught between the two extremes, trying to be free but also have meaningful relationship. I think in many ways it characterizes how many of us have experienced relationships in the church as well. Um, Churches find themselves, particularly in this season, in a difficult place. How do we attract people into a church service, keep people coming to a church service, feel like they're getting something out of it, including meaningful relationships, but not obligate them or put so many expectations on them that they bolt feeling like they're now tied down by this thing. We've increased the things that churches offer, all the ways we have for people to feel connected, to come in and experience relationships, but I like that image from that quote. Sometimes it feels like the TV is on so that it's less obvious that the people in the room aren't actually connected to one another. Church can often feel that way. We know a lot of people, we show up, there's lots of things to do together, worship, hear prayer requests, but how obligated, responsible, the expectations of those relationships, well, that's where some of it can start to feel uncomfortable. We want to make church appealing to a person who can still keep their autonomy. So we talk about, you belong here, or welcome home, or let's do life together, and put all of this in relational terms, but oftentimes people find church to be the exact opposite of meaningful relationships. We start to think of church as a place that I can slip in and out of those relationships as I need them. When I need an encouragement, it's there. When I want some time to myself, I can get back to it. We pitch the product of friendship as a part of church, but for many of us, I don't think we've experienced significantly meaningful relationships in all of our church experiences. Come to church and have friends is kind of the marketing pitch that sometimes gets put to it. Um, One of my favorite books, Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, has a great line in it in which he says, the marketer doesn't need to know what's right about the product, only what is wrong with the customer. And I think so often what happens in church contexts is we know that we're all hurting for meaningful relationships, and we end up getting them pitched to us as a product the church will fulfill. Um, One of the people who's helped me think through this probably more than anyone else is Tim Keller, and I've quoted it to you before, but he's done quite a bit of writing about how the idea of biblical community, which was once characterized by the idea of covenant, has been gradually changing due to the way that our culture tends to think of everything as a commodity. So he writes this that helps explain it. 
Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most of our relationships that were historically covenantal, including marriage. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back in return, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. And so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture and in our communities. I think that captures well how many of us have experienced relationships. I'm willing to bear some expectations just as long as I get enough in return out of these relationships. And at the moment, they start to cost a little more than I'm willing to pay. We go looking for another place, another group, another kind of relationship. What I want to suggest to you this morning in this conversation about, remember, the question we're asking, how should we think about each other in this church? We gather together, we encourage one another, but how should you think of these relationships amongst one another? I want to suggest to you that thinking of a church as a group of friends when you need them is not the right mental model for how you should consider one another. This church doesn't exist simply so that you could make friends. I think it actually offers something better than that, though more difficult than that. Thinking of church as a place your relationship, your relational needs get met, isn't quite the right way to think about these expectations. Um, Let me put it really simply, but in a way that can be a little hard. I can't promise that Bent Oak Church will fulfill every need you have in your life for relationships. It probably hasn't, and it probably won't in the future. I can't promise that we're exactly the kind of people that you've been looking for. We probably are not. If you've imagined a perfect community of people, we will fall short of that expectation that you've imagined. I can't promise that you will be happier here because of the people. I can't guarantee that I, nor others, won't at some point offend you or hurt your feelings. The odds are, if you stick here long enough, that too will probably happen. I don't want to be too down on this point, as if the goal here is just to come and constantly be let down by the people around you. I hope that doesn't happen, and I think there will also be moments where the people here will show you unbelievable grace, true kinds of friendship. I hope you do make friends. I hope you do have relational needs met by the people in this church. And I know for me that has happened in so many times, in so many ways, meaningfully. But I think this group of people is worth committing to for a very different reason than you're looking for a certain kind of people and friends and, hey, you just happen to find them here. You need a group of relationships that you're committed to for a reason bigger than just your own expectations or your own needs. Remember Jesus described it this way. They will know that you are my disciples. Remember, Jesus is saying this in an ancient context in which lots of people had disciples. There were plenty of teachers that had disciples. But Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by the love that you show for one another. That it's this outward action of caring for one another that will define Jesus as the center point of these relationships. And the language the Bible often uses for these relationships within the church is not the language of friendship. Instead, the language that so often is used is the language of brother and sister. 
That language that in previous generations of the church was even common in the way we would sometimes greet each other, brother and sister. But it is the image that again and again the scriptures return to to help you think about how it is you relate to one another in the body of Christ. Last week I had you flip from chapter 10 to 11 to 12. Uh, This week I want to read from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 13. And I want you to look at, uh, the author of Hebrews is, is beginning to conclude the letter. So he's wrapping this up. And it's interesting the way in this chapter he begins to conclude those thoughts. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1. The author writes, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's pretty obvious to see in verse 1 this language of family, this brother and sister, brotherly love. Make sure that it continues, persists, that it remains, that it endures amongst you. And then you get this really interesting list. Perhaps the types of relationships or people that might fall out of our expectations, things which the author wants us to specifically make sure we keep within the expectations of brotherly love. Hospitality for strangers. You know, angels from God have shown up as strangers before in scriptures, the author points out. Pay attention to how you care for those who may wander in, show hospitality. To those who are in prison, imagine in this ancient first century context, probably referring to those who are being persecuted or imprisoned for their faith. Don't forget about them simply because they're not with you, but imagine yourself imprisoned with them, persevere with them. Those who have been mistreated, possibly again those persecuted or even pushed out from the church because of the broken relationships, the issues and strife in the church. Consider yourself mistreated with them, that you share the same body. Value your commitment to marriage, the relationship and expectations of that covenant. And then there's an interesting prohibition against the love of money. That doesn't sound like brotherly love language. Why does he throw money into the mix? But it's interesting, though, because what he describes at the end of that statement against the love of money is a contentment for everything that you have. I think he's getting at something bigger than just money. The idea here is accept your life what you have. Don't be desperate to make more money or to fix things or to build things or to have better things. But look around you at the life you have and accept those things as things God has put into your hands. Perhaps nothing contributes more to the neglect of relationships than a discontentment and a desire to have things and achieve things that you don't currently possess. And so the author of Hebrews has been for several chapters now trying to build our faith, but also deepen our sense of community together. Don't neglect gathering, encourage one another, and see that this relationship of brotherly love persists between you. That's the thing that we should be looking to keep alive when we think about our expectations for relationships amongst one another. Does a kind of familiar, brotherly, sisterly love exist in the way that we think about one another? That's often the analogy that's used for a church. You know, there's all sorts of images the New Testament uses. The church is a temple. The church is the body of Christ. The church is a vine. 
But many, many times it comes back to this image of a family. The language is sometimes that we are the household of God, that we are adopted in as sons and daughters and so made to one another brothers and sisters. I'm lucky enough to have a brother, a brother that I have a pretty good relationship with. And so this idea of persisting brotherly love fits pretty directly into my experience. Uh, My brother lives in St. Louis, so I don't see him every day. We don't talk necessarily every day. But there's few people on this earth that I would trust more than him. There's few people that if I knew I really needed something, I could call and would be there more than him. And we've proved that to each other before. A brother is something different than just a friend. Sometimes friendships can become so strong that they end up taking on this kind of brotherly role. But they're not exactly the same thing. A brother, a family member, a sister is something that persists, something we find ourselves by expectations obligated into a relationship. The challenge here is that I know for some people, this image, this idea of a family This analogy of community as the love within a family is one that can be hard to accept. For some of you, the concept of God as a father, of brothers and sisters who show persisting love, does not fit into your expectations and experiences of real earthly families and can make this call to familial family love within the church maybe suspicious or painful. Perhaps it's similar for you. You've had great experiences or perhaps you find this hard. The last thing you may want is family. But it may be that the difficulty, the shortcomings of our own earthly families is what makes it so obvious that deep inside we are looking and longing for those kinds of brother and sister relationships. Um, Sometimes you'll hear the expression, the exception proves the rule. In this case, it may be that the rule, what seems to be the pretty universal experiences of families creating pain, the rule actually proves the exception that we are looking for something, that we do have in our capacity a longing for something that is more genuine and more true and more right. There is in Christ a better family created and restored and offered. I do think, though, with all of its difficulties, this idea of thinking of one another in family terms is how the Bible expects us to understand who we are to one another. That in this room are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You all know that no one can drive you crazy quite like a family member can. Family is complicated. Family can be at times hard and painful. And yet they are always your family. One of the things that I think makes the analogy work so well is none of us pick our family. We find ourselves one day born into it. We receive it. We're given it. In many ways, the way we think about God's family, this church, is like that. You don't attend Bent Oak because at some point you sat down and made a list of all the people you would like to spend more time with and then got them together and then here they are. Much like a family, you start attending here because God pulled you into it in some way. And these are the people. This is what you've received. Here's how I would say it. I think the acceptance of one another, not just as friends, friends that you've been looking for or wanting, I think your acceptance of them as brothers and sisters is a way of acknowledging that God has taken over your life, adopted you into a place not of your own choosing, but given you something as a gift, as a grace, to build and mature your sense of relationships and expectations. To put it simply, 
you need to learn to be grateful for a group of people that you are given without having decided that they're the kind of people you're looking for or that you want. If I could speak as a pastor, this is actually one of the great joys that I've come to experience and learn as a pastor. Just in case you weren't aware, as a pastor, I don't pick a congregation. Uh, There's no, like, uh, secret playground meeting where all the pastors in town got together and went one by one choosing who we would like in our church. At some point, each of you just wandered in here. And at some point, I met you and got to know you. And I want you to know that from that moment that you started coming, I became your pastor by obligation. Here you are, in the congregation. And my calling by God, the expectations on me, is to shepherd this group of people, not because I said, these are the ones I've picked, but because you're the ones who came. That actually ends up being one of the great joys of pastoring, that you meet all kinds of people and get to know people, and you start to look at people and recognize them as people by God and the leading of the Holy Spirit that have been brought together. The moment as a pastor you start thinking of a congregation as something abstract, the kind of people I would like to reach, or the kind of people I would like to be at our church, is the moment you miss that joy of receiving who it is that God sends into this community of believers. I don't think that's just the calling of a pastor, though. I think that's your calling when you show up here as well, too. That you walk in and say to yourself each week, not by my own choosing or design or preference, But just like I'm born into a family, these are my brothers and sisters by God's leading and God's placement. And so I bear to them these responsibilities and expectations and obligations to encourage one another, to gather together, to be there. Again, not the same thing as a friend. At times, maybe you aren't needed. Maybe this brother-sister relationship has some distance, but always in the back of your mind knowing that when you need it, Those are the people who will be there, who will show up, who will stand with you and grieve with you and pray with you and celebrate with you and then send us back out and do other relationships, other family relationships, but always knowing that it persists, that it remains, that that brotherly love is here. There's two ways I think that we're encouraged to do this, to build up, to persist this brotherly love amongst one another or maybe to set down some of our relational expectations and just receive one another as God has given these relationships to us. The first one is right here in Hebrews 13, and I stopped just short of it. That list of obligations, brotherly love, the stranger who wanders in, those who suffer and are persecuted, the contentment you're supposed to cultivate so that you can show that affection to others, it ends with these words. For he has said, who's this he in this passage? Jesus himself. Jesus has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What I want you to hear from this is the way the author in Hebrews turns our attention back to recognize that we have not been the ones to initiate that most fundamental relationship. Christ has already done it for you. Whatever it is you're looking for, Whatever loneliness you're experiencing or isolation you may feel, we're reminded very clearly that Christ speaks to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have a true friend, a true and good brother. You have one who will not hurt you, who will not abandon you, 
who will not walk away from you or forsake you or be too busy for you. That all of our relationships within this church are founded on first having our deepest relational needs met, not by one another, but by Christ, who persists and remains and is faithful. Everything we come to expect from one another, the way we encourage one another and show up for one another, has its foundation in this first being done for us by Christ. Some of you have been looking for that kind of relational fulfillment in other people. And you've been finding it discouraging and disappointing and painful as people have let you down time and time again. There's nothing wrong with wanting good friends. You should. There's nothing wrong with expecting to find meaningful relationships here amongst brothers and sisters. But hear me clear. What Hebrews suggests is the deepest, most fundamental relationship you're looking for is the one with Christ, who perseveres, who never leaves, who never forsakes. He is the one who fulfills those relational needs so that it frees you to go and offer yourself into relationship with others, no longer desperate or expecting that they solve all of them, but that Christ has done that first. The author of Hebrews is being very clear with this. You will not be able to serve others to love in a brotherly way, to welcome the stranger, to suffer those who are persecuted, to be content with what you have. None of those things are possible. If you don't remember, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is where our expectations of relationship with one another begins. Christ has done it first. Christ has become the true brother, the great friend. The first thing you do to set the proper expectations amongst one another is remember that we each have Christ persisting with us. The second thing is this. You have to stop evaluating everyone and learn to be grateful for those that God has placed in your life. I told you every sermon you get a small dose of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's time for that shot, so brace yourself. A short quote. Bonhoeffer writes in Life Together, He who loves his dream of a community more than the actual Christian community itself becomes the destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The one who loves their dream of a group of people more than the actual group of people destroys the people. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God, God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions on us. Some of you think that sounds terrible. (laughs) I have my life figured out, my plans before me, and God sends people that cancel my plans with their claims and petitions. The truth is, what God does is gift us these interruptions by people to remind us That all of life is received and responded to. That he is at work, placing people, moving people into our paths with expectations. Having found all of our needs met in him, now capable of setting down, content with what we have, to serve and give and love those around us. I've been trying in this series to make each of these sermons a very simple and practical statement. I don't want you, though, to mistake those simple and practical statements as simple ideas or simple things to do. They're not. 
I've often said to you in that first week and many times before that the greatest spiritual discipline I know is show up. Don't neglect gathering together. Just do it. Show up. The second one I offered you from last week was keep going. Encourage one another to persevere through worship, through word, through prayer for one another. Show up. Persevere. And if I could put this third one into a simple statement like that, it would simply be this. Say thanks. Cultivate a kind of generosity for the relationship that you have in Christ, offered by him, I will never leave you and forsake you. And say thanks, cultivate a kind of generosity for the people around you. That God has placed them into your path, possibly interrupting your plans or expectations, because he knows what you need and how these relationships will deepen and enrich your sense of his gospel. The most important thing you can do for this community, to set the proper expectations for one another, to really try to turn this into the kind of church where brotherly love persists, where you experience that in ways as it was intended by Christ, the most important thing you can do is simply to regularly bow your head and say thanks to God for the people that you find yourself with here in this church. You can do that as a whole. Thank you, God, for Bent Oak Church, but I would prefer you not even use the name. Who cares? What I really want you to do is to think of these actual individual people and to thank God for each of them, sometimes in their complexities, sometimes in ways that might rub you a little bit the wrong way, but that God, by his grace, has put these people together in this church by his sovereignty, by his grace, by his mercy, and by his plans, that we would love one another having been loved by him, adopted by him, that we would love one another as brothers and sisters. This is actually one of the great things about a church our size. You could actually do this. You could stop and think, when you get home, about each of the faces you saw, the people you interacted with in the lobby or talked to after church or just the kids you saw run past you as they were headed their way. Stop, think about each of them, and pray for them, but also a prayer of gratitude that they are here. And a question, God, how is it that you've called me to love this person as a brother, as a sister in Christ? Even when someone annoys you or wrongs you or neglects you, Christ, thank you for this person. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for putting us in the same room. Thank you for helping us share this faith that we have in you and teach us by your love how to love one another. Let brotherly love continue. There's nothing fancy about that, nothing particularly profound. There's no kind of program we put in place to train you to do it. But it is in so many ways like being a part of a family. Here we are. These are the people that I'm born into. How do I learn to be grateful for it, to see the good in it, to persevere with one another, to be there when the other needs it, to encourage one another, to show up, to keep going? What I hope this sermon series does as we get ready to pray is, is, in its simplicity, I hope you don't miss the power and the depth of what we are being asked to do. Those things may sound simple, show up, keep going, encourage one another, be grateful for one another. But to do those things genuinely and honestly is both difficult and unbelievably rare. Look, the truth is, what most often tears a church apart 
what most often wounds people within the church, what most often discredits the church's reputation in a community or amongst non-believers is not the building, it's not the programs, it's usually not even the preaching. What usually causes the greatest pain is the way that we interact with one another, the expectations, the shortcomings, the way in which we use one another, hurt one another, and sometimes it's unavoidable. We are fallen people. But this commitment to love one another in brotherly love, as simple as it may sound, is at the heart of what we've been called to do when we come together, to receive the relationship Christ has offered, and by the foundation of that relationship, to set aside our judgments and expectations, to receive one another with gratitude, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to persevere, to let brotherly love continue. I'm sorry for the times we've not always done that well, myself included. My goal and my hope and my prayer is that we would be the kind of church that perseveres in it, that continues in it, that strives towards it, with Christ as our example. Let's close in prayer this morning and let's do exactly that. Let's take a moment to thank Christ for his relationship and for those relationships by his leading we find ourselves in the midst of. Heavenly Father, we do as we read in this chapter this morning. We take a moment to remind ourselves that you are faithful, that you will not forsake us or leave us. And in fact, you have come and offered your life, sacrificing for us, saving us and redeeming us when we were lost and hostile to you. That you are the true brother and the true friend and that you have welcomed us into this better family. And so I pray, God, that we would learn not only to be grateful for what you have given us, but that we would learn to be grateful for these relationships you place in our lives as well. That, God, we would love one another with brotherly love. That we would endure with one another. That we would be there for one another. That we would encourage one another on to greater perseverance. And that God, as humble and as simple as these callings are, showing up, keeping at it, being grateful, saying thanks, that God, we would find in them a power to transform who we are in this world and in these expectations and relationships. God, I pray that you would free us from the way this world looks at relationships that's producing so much loneliness and despair and isolation. God, you would free us from constantly looking for what we want and what we need and evaluating and judging and thinking that we can pick. That, God, you would teach us to quiet our hearts, to open our lives and receive relationships that you bring, that you direct, and that there would be in it a kind of joy, a kind of grace, a sense of how your spirit is moving and directing and calling us together that we, like stones, are being built together into this temple, placed by your hand upon one another, that we are like a family being adopted together by your work. So I pray this morning just a simple prayer of gratitude. For those who are here this morning, for those who are unable to be here, for all of those who think of this church, Bent Oak, as their home, God, I am grateful for these people, each of them, Husbands and wives and families, kids, grandparents and parents, men and women across all these ages. God, that by your sovereignty, you have brought us together into this church. 
We don't neglect that. But we say this morning, thank you. And we commit ourselves in the days to come to turning our attention individually to one another. To pray for your guidance, your blessing, your steadfast love and presence, but also just to say thank you. These people are in my life. That I get to be their pastor. That we get to encourage one another. That you, by your sovereignty, by your wisdom, have seen good that we might be together. So we don't neglect it, but we thank you for it. We worship you for it this morning. It's in your name we pray.